0: Welcome to take note, a side note edition. Occasionally, we do some side notes that uh, that are stray from the path, uh, the highly rigorous, highly disciplined path of stationary and notebook podcasting that we've established to cover uh, topics to capture or, our interest. In the case of uh, Adam and uh, special guest Dan Kugler talking about Slackers by Richard Slacker. By Richard Linklater, I strongly suggest you go back in the stream and find that episode. Uh, I did one about walking around in Paris that uh, that was off the off the chart. <laughs> it was <laughs> off the beaten path. It was bit. off. It was off the chart too. <laughs> uh, so today we are going to talk about the mysteries of Pittsburgh by an author that uh, both Adam and I hold in great esteem. Michael Chabon it is the first book first novel by Chabon which uh, I think uh, for for a successful writer of his ilk uh, there's something about the first work from someone as great as he is that that maintains a kind of an aura Uh, you know Adam you you go back to this book time and again what is it about mysteries of pittsburgh for you
1: yeah you know it's it that's that's a good question that's something i think about i this is either my third or fourth time reading this book in 20 years and i think it is very much the whatever it is about being a first novel um there's something urgent about a first novel there's something kind of it goes down easy, sort of. Um, and it's not necessarily, I don't think my favorite Michael Shabon book, except yeah. that at this point I'm so familiar with it that it maybe brings me uh, more joy than anything else Michael Shabon does because there's a, uh, you know, there's a recollection, there's a familiarity, there's some nostalgia in it. Um, I think that is why I have reread it so many times. And also it's just a, it's a, it's a book that wants to be picked up, and it's a book that's kind of hard to put down, I think. Um, now, uh, what about you? Uh, is, You've read it a few times, I think. You've read it two or three times. And is that just because I've pushed it on you, or <laughs> is there more to I, it for you?
0: Yeah, I think this is my third time. And yeah, I like what you said. It's not my favorite Chabon book. Uh, it's not even in my top five, I would say. Um, I don't enjoy it uh, on the level that I think you do. I, I, to me, there's elements that feel a little more strained and a little, a little, uh, less substantial, a little less sort of Chabon-esque, um, than his other books. Uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is to me kind of like an amazing achievement, um, and that's how I, I came to meet Chabon. So coming back around to his first book, I think it's, it's almost, you know, knowing that it's his first and knowing that that's sort of part of the mythology of it and that he is a writer who, who likes to talk about the development of his career and his, you know, he, he, he's known to talk about how books have gone. You know, he has a sort of famously disastrous draft of a book. That he had to completely abandon before Wonder Boys, but he, you know, didn't keep that a secret. So I think you look at a first book and there's a sort of a a vulnerability to it, or a I don't know, almost relatability that, that it's imperfections get folded into this story of the first book.
1: Yes. You said you said two things that are basic are basically in my notebook about this book. Um well I was about to say imperfections. I really like uh, books and movies that are imperfect. Um, when I saw Orson Welles' The Trial in uh, Cambridge at the Brattle Theater when I was in college, it was a movie that I didn't know existed. That is such an imperfect film, and I went back and saw it the next day. Um, and I think what I like about imperfect things, when I like imperfect things, it's because I can feel the creator reaching for something and it's like it's the reaching for the thing whether they whether they got it or not that is really exciting and that i definitely see definitely see in orson wells the trial um and i think i see, you see that in first novels and maybe with first novels they get what they're going for but in mysteries of pittsburgh you see it in this like we'll have to get into the plot at some point but this thing where his dad's a gangster which is just awkward and kind of dealt yes. with as a as like a fun little detail although towards yes. the end it becomes part of a thing but there is this reaching and that i think is I what i not, like about a work of art
0: i could not agree with you more on that exact point and it's from the very first scene i mean I, i'm gonna flip almost flip to the page here uh at the beginning of the summer this is the first sentence of the first chapter At the beginning of the summer, I had lunch with my father, the gangster, who was in town for the weekend to transact some of his vague business. I mean, the whole. (laughs) So it, it, I I read this once, you know, some long time ago, and I remember thinking about it later and thinking to myself. I remember that the yeah. father is a gangster, right. but I yeah. cannot remember why or what the point of that was or if it had anything to do. It's like, as this book recedes in time, Yes, all you can remember is the awkward part of the gangster stream and, and none of the actual plot points, which actually are more substantial than I recall, even in rereading yep. it.
1: Absolutely, Last month. I I completely agree <laughs> that I that I mean I completely agree that all the gangster stuff, the issue of the author's uh, homosexuality or bisexuality, after a few years after the book, after you've read the book, or probably a few months after you've read the book, those parts of the book seem like little details in the book, but they are what yep. the book hangs on in a way. It's bizarre that I've read this book three times, and I would tell you that yep. the gangster part and the sexuality are not that important. But I mean, that's what the book is about, which is amazing. But, um, you know, the you also t- said relatability. And as we're talking about the overreach of the book, you know, a few paragraphs, just a few paragraphs later, uh, he is telling the narrator is telling his father about his plans for the summer. And it is about like reaching to uh, too far uh, on the way of the shining needle to the top, I will wear a lot of neckties. I will buy five or six works of Genius on 45 RPM. And perhaps too many times I will find myself uh, looking at the sta- snapped spine of a lemon wedge at the bottom of a drink. I anticipate a coming season of dilated time and of women all in disarray. And then his father tells him that he's uh, um, overwrought. And... <laughs> I mean, that's a
0: line of dialogue. Yeah. That that We are to believe as the reader that a... That a young man spoke those words aloud to his father yeah which is i mean and to be fair you know chabon does what most famous writers do which is to swear off their the work of their younger days and 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 groan at you know when they see their own work and say you can see how i was so young and stupid when i wrote that so he does all of that too which is fine but you can just feel the the shooting for the moon and, right. and like a like like Gonzo getting shot out of a cannon, just falling short of the net and face planting with that that dialogue. Just again, right off the bat, he made a choice to unfold this 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 contrived language as if in dialogue, and you know the language itself is beautiful, which is. Which is, I think, the other fascinating thing about this book is that there are many passages in which his potential and his command of language are are just without question.
1: And I think that's why we forget the plot. I think yeah. the language in this book is what sticks that really sticks with you. And that's what the book is about more than the plot. Uh, as to the issue of relatability, though, what I wrote in my notebook on that issue, I wrote The Mysteries of Houston. Doesn't this book make you feel like you should write The Mysteries of Houston? Or some ver- Like, some doesn't it inspire you to want to I write?
0: I'm pretty sure that I have actually drafted the first three pages of my own book and, and called it The Mysteries <laughs> of Houston for a while. Like, right, I think that's something I did in my twenties, probably over and over. And so I think that is why I love this book and why I read yeah. this book. Well, it's and you know when you think of it that way, yeah. And and I'll jump to this this essay that's in the back of my version in a minute because it speaks to that pretty closely. But but when you he he's created it, 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 some sort of a mirror book. It's like a mirror book uh, that you can see yourself writing um, almost maybe probably you could probably can only do that because it's not great because it's good, not great with moments of brilliance. Like there's there's some kind of attainability there, but it's also it's about Pittsburgh, but it's there's no point at which I actually feel like I've learned anything about the city of Pittsburgh. (laughs) Like it, it seems to not, it, it could be any place. And yet, once again, he's taken this shot and said, the title of my book is Mysteries of Pittsburgh, which you will finish without feeling like you know anything about Pittsburgh, much less its mysteries.
1: Well, I think and part any, of any, that young,
0: could... any young kid could write a book about, I, I could easily write a book about Houston that didn't make you think about Houston, or, or my brain thinks that I can do that.
1: Well, I think, you know, I, I, I agree with you, but I suspect that he has captured a couple of slivers of Pittsburgh, and he's done it in such a way that makes you think about your own hometown or your own life that we don't um, we don't put those descriptions as, oh, that's another city, that's a Pittsburgh, because they kind of feel real to us even though this factory that he talks about which he calls the cloud factory is a real place in pittsburgh that still stands there and he refers to a neighborhood as the lost neighborhood which is um an actual neighborhood i don't know if it was ever called the lost neighborhood other than but by michael Shabon. i don't know about pittsburgh but these are real places but the um you know he, he makes it so relatable that it's hard to feel like pittsburgh and this novel about someone whose father is the gangster you relate the novel seems like a novel you could write, and so maybe we don't hang on the father being a gangster. Maybe we yeah. think about the language and apply it to the book we would write.
0: And I th- I think, you know, w- w- I-, I tend to think of it as, like, blundering through this. But in a way, by positioning, you know, kind of taking on the the traditional sort of young, young male... Um, bouncing through a summer which which it was a part of his inspiration that he talks about um it's it's rather brilliant in a way because the narrator is the the writer of the book and the narrator are close enough together that you kind of i think a, a defining characteristic of this book is that you conflate the writer and the narrator pretty consistently to the point where you then by the end of it feel an affinity for the writer you feel more of an affinity for the writer because you feel like you've been through the writerly experience through the narrator and the writer and it's all a big jumble if that makes sense
1: it um, does and i think one the of the hand interesting...
0: of chabon all is is on a, every page and so you love chabon all the more by the end of it just for the sheer effort of it and I don't know, and then feeling. I'm going to jump to the essay at the end to. So this was this really helped frame it to me. He's talking about his you know, um, coming up with the idea for the book as a 22 year old looking to about to go into a writing program. He stumbles onto The Great Gatsby, uh, in his stepfather's book collection, which he'd read before, but then he realized. Uh, I would write a novel about friendship and its impossibility, about self-inventors and dreamers of giant dreams, about problematic women and the men who make them that way. Um, and then, uh, seemingly as if uh, by magic, I put uh, The Great Gatsby in its place on the shelf, and as I did so, I noticed its immediate neighbor, an old Meridian paperback edition of Goodbye Columbus by Philip Roth. Uh, and he realizes that he that those two books and that his book will take place over the course of a summer in which the three acts are built in June, July, and August, which is of course absolutely how this book feels. And you know I read Goodbye Columbus a long time ago and and after I finished that book, I remember thinking, okay, it's time for me to write my version of Goodbye Columbus. I mean, it was almost the same impulse and so then it becomes this you can just envision this cascading you know of the right. great writer of every generation and i think chabon even says that in the essay you in when roth write, wrote goodbye columbus you can feel the gatsby in it and of course when chabon writes this book you can feel the good goodbye columbus in it um there's something about that form that that is relatable and inspiring and tweaks your tweaks not only your reading of it but your desire to create something in the same form and maybe it's cuz we've all just had an intense summer along the way something about summer
1: yeah and i think there's like uh, that three act structure of the three months or the three days and i think a better writer could write a story about a long weekend um or more experienced writer i mean could write a story about a long weekend but that uh, writing a story that's set across three months and having to spread the action out like that uh, gives a new writer the um, opportunity to jump a, jump ahead to when things get good again. Yeah. Jump ahead and to I, the next, if, next bit of action.
0: If I, you know, I, I will say that the the... The three acts, uh, like there was some, there's something off to me about the the time signatures and I'm not sure if I could articulate it, um, but I think it's tied in with me to the, I have this feeling, you know, three quarters of the way through um, how odd it was for this narrator to be so in, engulfed in, <clears throat> in the lives of. Of people he met two weeks ago, or something. He he almost seemed to have no no life before
1: the moment the book starts. Right. Like, somehow. Yeah. Had he Which just I, broken I, up with someone? Is that? That's fair. No. Is that's that how true. he got there? there were,
0: maybe. That's true. That's a, that's a good point. Um, he does have his ex girlfriend, but I don't believe she she's in a few flashbacks, but she doesn't. Well it's just like
1: I mean obviously it's just a trick to make this story clean right to begin you got you have to begin somewhere and he doesn't want to yeah. go backwards that far. Um, should uh, maybe I should very briefly describe the plot of the book although I would think anyone listening to this would have read the book, but we didn't tell people anyways uh, the it's the the story is that uh, uh, a new graduate, is looking forward to having a summer without any responsibility before he becomes a giant. And I think uh, his goals are as vague as that, right? He just wants mm. to be a giant in the future. Is that right?
0: I think that's fair. Okay.
1: Um, and so he tells his dad that his dad is visiting from out of town. His dad is a vague gangster. I get the feeling he's, uh, right? He's an accountant for the mob or something. Um, mm-hmm. And then he goes to the library at his uh, alma mater, I think, and um, runs into two people, uh, a woman who becomes his girlfriend and a man who later in the story becomes his boyfriend. And he his life becomes enveloped with them. He works at a bookstore in a boring job. And he, I think he wants the boring job. And... Then uh, he has adventures around the city. he um, he has these relationships. There's people vying for his attention. and at the same time, uh, like char- tertiary tertiary characters, friends of those new people that he's met um, begin to kind of shape his summer as well. Uh, and that's I mean that's about it, really, except that at some point, um, a friend of a friend, wants to leverage the fact that the narrator whose name is um uh Arthur, Humbert, Humbert I think <laughs> <that's> his, name. <laughs> his name is his name is Arthur and there's another character named Art in the book uh the other main the other main male character is named Art but a friend of a friend decides to leverage uh the narr- the fact that the narrator's father is a gangster and uh f- to to better himself to move himself forward and um, that well, kind of becomes any- the plot in the Third yeah. act. I
0: mean, I think that that character Cleveland, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, who is probably the most interesting character, but at the same time feels as if he, the writer is trying to to make him the most interesting character by sheer force of explanation. But I, I think he he ends up. Being fairly compelling, he's um, sort of uh, charming, uh, or at least uh, unconventional enough to seem charming. Um, alcoholic, uh, but magnetic, and poetic, uh, but unruly and uncouth, and uh, but loving at the same time. This, you know, an, 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 I think an interesting, an interesting mix-up that uh you know what to, like creating tension in a novel is always it just seems like the the great feat to me when you turn around and realize that you've you've been kind of uh clutch clutching your breath with the last few, few pages and you think oh that that's a pretty remarkable achievement to do that with words i think that the closest for me that that this book comes is is wondering why Arthur keeps getting bound up with Cleveland. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But that the, that, that magnetism and that, the sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of antisocial, uh, uh, self-aware antisocial, you know, pushing of the edges of society that I think, you know, the real memorable, some of my most memorable things from summertime were when um you know when me and friends just pushed pushed out at the edges of of my the world that was visible to me and my circumference you know like breaking into the football stadium at midnight to go and mess around and whatever
1: shoot fireworks off the save the save that for the uh, dazed match. and confused cast the next in the lighter ones Still Dazed and Confused. Uh, yeah. no,
0: that's mystery. Those are plot points from Mysteries of Houston that I'm giving away. Oh, I
1: see. But well, they're also plot points I... from Dazed and Confused. <laughs> Apparently every, every child of Texas broke into the football stadium. It's, it looms large. In, it's a, a dark
0: silhouette in the nighttime that, yeah. that young people are just drawn to like moths. Well, um,
1: one of the reasons that he keeps finding himself drawn to Cleveland, I think, is spoken, I think, early in the book where the narrator says he he decided to do this because he was looking for adventure this summer. He wanted to find the, some life or some activity or some story. He wanted to live. Uh, and do I have that right or am I mixing that up with another book? I think that's, I'm sure he said that at some point. Okay, I mean, great. The, the, the implication is there throughout. And so, I, anyway, I think that's kind of like a bold move for the author, assuming I'm remembering it correctly, to say, um, you know, to have the action hinge on, and, and maybe this is a an, a new writer move, but um, I wasn't going to accept this invitation but then i remembered that i wanted to live and experience something and have yeah. a story this summer and so i said yes and i went to the party or whatever yep yeah yeah
0: um i i the <laughs> the the character that cleveland reminds me of in a way is uh the coen brothers raising arizona uh huh the uh the biker, you know, the kind of hellhound biker. Yeah. <laughs> who's always just roaring down the highway, kind of stomping his way around. Uh I always I, I imagine that guy. And and it's not a it it's it's probably not a complimentary parallel. Like to me that character in Raising Arizona is like a plot device that you that that sprung forth From the imagination of the director, the director, you know, they were saying to the audience, this is a plot device and it's fun and it's, but it's outside of the kind of, you know, this is not a, 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 an exercise in realism for me, for us to say there is now a, a fury uh, who literally looks like a devil. Yeah. chasing after the main character with seemingly no motivation well and um, in
1: mysteries of pittsburgh cleveland literally uh drags arthur out of his boring job and back into the story he kidnaps him i mean politely kidnaps him to take him away from his job and go to a party or uh go away for a weekend or something like that and then and in I, the end i mean there's uh this without cleveland it is just a um a love triangle, and with Cleveland there's action.
0: It's a low overhead love triangle, which was another another tonal thing about the book, but I think with 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 a character like Cleveland, you know like just the great writers are able to hit the tone that can make um that can that can make a character like that work. Yeah. You know, it's there's a there's a I don't know, it inside the book, outside of the book balancing act that that takes that always takes place. And I, I I think that later, like in the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay, uh I think Chabon has absolutely finds that it's almost like the groove or like the pocket for like a, a, a a band playing a song where the just every, every piece and part of it lines up in a galactic frequency that just works. Like I, I think he hits that later in his career, but here it, you know, the Cleveland character is obviously such a character, uh, that there's, and he doesn't, he doesn't fold it in, in the way that, you kind of really need to to hit it out of the park i think he's still he's so good even at this stage that it's still a compelling it's still a compelling scenario and you still want to see what happens and like when cleveland late in the book he 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 is described in excruciating detail breaking into a a peaceful residence on a clearly like horribly ill-fated robbery attempt and it was it was one of my favorite passages of the book, I would say.
1: The just, break in and the setup? Is that the right one?
0: The break in and the you know, him kind of creeping around the the edges of the woods, you know, taking pulls off of his whiskey bottle and the way the way he described that and then describing kind of like the you know, the comings and goings of the family whose home he was about to invade and I just thought that was it took me out, it took me into a, a scenario with a character grappling with the physical world in a way that sometimes I thought all the, you know, the, the narrator's kind of hyper self-awareness and his, his, he was so, the, the Arthur was so overwrought at this love triangle that he was in, but I couldn't get over the fact that he'd known these people for like three weeks and somewhere along the way he had taken this on and maybe that's youth you know maybe that's like what you do in the summer is it 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 does become your world and i think that's part of it um but i i i i wasn't i wasn't in it a hundred percent
1: right yeah i mean I, i guess i would say that's youth and it's also just like condensing the novel and i yeah I was gonna agree with you that I wasn't in it one hundred percent. I think I, I am kind of in it one hundred percent when I'm reading this book for whatever reason. I think it's interesting. I think you're kind of drawn to the. It sounds like especially in that scene the, like the gangster story, which is barely in the story. Right. It's it's almost like, Shaban's um, very interested in genre work, and I think from other things I've read, maybe from that uh, same essay that you have, that he wanted to find ways to bring genre work into mm-hmm. his, uh, you know, quote, literary mm-hmm. fiction. Um, and that's the part that you're drawn to, which he is not necessarily, like, um, he's trying to resist it, even though that's what, if there's a plot, that's one of I'll the two plots. I was, drawn, I was drawn
0: to that scene. I won't say that I wasn't particularly drawn to the, the whole, all of the genre stuff. Yeah. And I, I was, not to jump ahead, but the, the great dramatic... The great dramatic sort of uh, the chase the at the fireworks, end. the yeah. explosion at the end of the chase, yeah, was. So that was another moment in the book where, you know, after the first time I read it five years later, I thought to myself, D- "What in the hell was that last <laughs> scene?" There was a guy, and did he fall into a what is? It? And I still, even as I think about it right this second, I read it three weeks ago. I can't remember exactly what happens to the character except that that's the end and may he falls or it's
1: whatever but it's like it's such a weird yep and hard to visualize. I, it's set it's set yeah. in a factory that you spent so much time early in the book like with this kind of poetic description of the cloud factory yep. and what it is and yep. then at the end it is kind of hard to visualize. But um I, I mean I think Shabon is known because of Adventures of Cavalier and Clay as like one of the writers in I guess like early two thousands probably. Um yeah. Who helped break down divisions between like genre work and literary work, which I think is really I've o i have remember when I read Cavalier and Clay, I was really surprised. Like, that is not a that is not a genre book except for the brief scene in antarctica i think where uh, that i didn't particularly care for but um oh, yeah, the rest yeah, of the book yeah. i liked. Yeah. um but he mm-hmm. he gets like a reputation for that and it, and it definitely comes out in his later work in the yiddish policeman's union and mm-hmm. in um i don't know uh, that's the one that i'm remembering off the top of my head
0: but that's it, the bi- i'd say that's the big and yeah. there was, uh he wrote one called the final solution that was a shorter
1: oh book. yeah that's really good that's a was kind of a mystery. It was Sherlock. It was fantastic. It's a Sherlock Holmes book, except he never says it's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, right. Um, very
0: very under-discussed, but fantastic book that I need yeah. to
1: reread actually. Yeah, but so it's interesting to me that this is like something that uh, he tried. I think a little bit in Mysteries of Pittsburgh, and then mm-hmm. I don't think he does it in. Um, it's not called Van Zorn in Wonder Boys. Um, but but he gets this reputation for doing it with his, like, genius work, his, you know, masterpiece of uh, Cavalier and Clay because it is about comic book writers.
0: Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, the, the other thing about Shayban is that he loves to talk about genre. Like, yeah. I I don't think he would have developed a reputation as the genre-bending guy, except that he likes to talk about genre-bending. And he, you know you go into one of his books at this point in his career knowing that he loves, you know, to read sci-fi or you you bring that to the table uh which is part of what that's part of what makes a great writer. Great is that they you you develop this bigger uh relationship with their sort of intellectual interests and you you bring that into everything you read and it informs it and enriches it and you go back and you you can trace the threads of it. But I, if he's not talking about it all the time, then I don't think it actually comes through in his work. I mean, yeah, it's really just the least successful component of this book. And that if he hadn't written that essay where he said, I really wanted to bring genre into it, he almost let him off the hook for the crummy parts of the book when he does that. It's almost, I mean, it's almost a way of saying I wanted to make my book good and interesting, <laughs> but also have it be written well. But if you say genre, then you kind of, you kind of get yourself a funny little pass or something. Yeah. But you know, I, I say this all. I, I do think that the some of the passages with like the uh, Uncle Lenny, you know, kind of in a room, yep. and you know, they they burst into the hotel room. I thought that was some really good writing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I... And fun, fun tension and weird language tweak it like the the seeds of it were all there. It just felt like a different story or that it didn't even that it it was it, it's almost a matter of the characters were not driving the story at times, you know.
1: So I guess I, I get the feeling that I like this story. I like this book more than you. I know that because I think that's very possible. Yeah, thanks to Gmail. I know that um, I liked it the first time I read it, but that uh, and and encouraged you to reread it. Well, or because I liked it so much, you reread it. I have an email from you from however many years ago that says I liked it a lot more than the first time I read it. So if this is the third time now, uh, yeah, then what do you think? Are you going to read it a fourth time? Should we do another episode about the mysteries of Pittsburgh in a few months <laughs> after you read it again?
0: You know I probably I'll probably read it again before I kick the bucket. okay. Um, it'll probably be a while though, you yeah know? I think um, I really wanted to read it again because I'd forgotten all of these things that we're talking about and and I, I you know I, I, sometimes with, with the rereading of this one, I'm just curious to relive it because it I have thought about it for so long, and now we'll have thought about it deeply. Um, and that'll add to it all the more. So I think, I think what, what it's sort of aura will maintain, but I probably won't read it for a while. I mean, it's got some great passages, but for me, the, the, the entirety of it is not, you know, up to the standard of how much I love a book that I'm willing to put the time in it to reread it. I'm not a fast reader and it takes me a while to read stuff. So the... The investment is you know relatively high, um, not to say I don't want to say that I didn't enjoy it um, and I particularly enjoyed it knowing that we would talk about it so
1: yeah. i guess there's I mean, there's
0: plenty of passages that i that I found to be uh quite remarkable in fact, which is makes anything worth rereading right and there's... you know I came away from this book thinking um, you know being really impressed with his desire to make sentences really interesting
1: yep yeah yeah there's passages that are inspiring and i think part of the reason that i i mean this is one of only two books that i reread basically and mm. the other one is pale fire by Nabokov, and that's a different thing there's like pale fire is there's puzzles in there and there's mysteries and every time you read it you get a little closer to a mystery you're never going to solve like you can't make sense of that book there's whole. There's books written about that book, but you can appreciate it the first time you read it and you can continue to appreciate it. This is something different. These passages are inspiring and they make me want to write and they make me think about writing and not just like, you know, I think I I call it an imperfect book, but it's not like uh, this book is imperfect. So when I read it, I think, oh, I could write an imperfect book. You know what I mean? I it's it's there's more to it than that. Yeah. I do. I do have one passage that I wrote down because I wanted to at least, um, you know, this so all. I'll just read it now. But I, you know, when you read, when I read, the city was new again and newly dangerous, and I would, and I would walk its streets quickly, eyes averted from those of passerby's, like a spy in the employ of lust and happiness, carrying the secret deep within me, but always on the tip of my tongue. Like when I read something like that, I I want to write complex sentences like that i there's a romanticism to it that i think makes me want makes me feel like you know that's what i want to write and also becomes obvious to me why i don't remember the plot of the book ever because it's that 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 sentence is like has nothing to do with the plot of the book and i won't even remember that sentence but it's that feeling that the book gives me that is going to stick with me instead of apparently the plot after reading it three times
0: yeah I think that is very well said and I agree with you completely. Uh, and, you know, I think the great... the great novelists or the great novels even uh, do this dance between um, describing a plot that's compelling and, and, and moves you forward in time and feels like something you want to learn more about as things unfold uh, and also taking those moments of reflection... just like the passage you've just read that uh that make it make an experience more universal and one that you can relate to as a reader that are those writerly points of reflection that um you know maybe that moves it into the literary realm i don't know but i'm i'm with you 100 percent and i think uh you know if you counted them you could probably find 20 such passages in this book that uh That that knock you back, and that's a that's a major achievement. Yeah, just looking through uh, just looking through some of the passages, I underlined. He said uh, the narrator says at one point, there are head people who suffer from sudden migraines, and there are stomach people
1: like me. (laughs) That's a great. I mean, that's (laughs) like that's beautiful. Yeah. All right. So this is my third time reading this. I've reread *Pale Fire*. I wonder if. And I think those are the only two books that I reread. Really, every once in a while, I say I'm going to read "A uh, Hundred Years of Salted," but that's been—it's been twenty years, so maybe it's time to do that. <laughs> um, but uh, well, are there books that you reread?
0: Yeah. Uh, so I I did recently. Well, I, I reread "Cavalier and Clay." Oh, okay. Uh, I think you know I read that uh, in the wake of my house flooding in Hurricane Harvey. I I was kind of flailing. Uh, just mentally, you know, creatively searching for a a lighthouse in a, in a storm. And, uh, you know, when our boxes were all packed up and, and moved into this little apartment and there was Cavalier and Clay and I picked it up and it was, it was just, this absolutely anchoring, uh, read. And it was probably my third time reading it. Um, I did also just read The Sun Also Rises which uh which to me was not terribly dissimilar from Mysteries of Pittsburgh in that you know it's it's been so many years of reading it and see, seeing it in a certain light and maybe remembering certain details vividly but not really the larger context um I enjoyed the heck out of that uh not that long ago. I uh, found it to be more more Rich and deep than than I remembered by far, um, but I don't read a ton of books, you know, frequently over and over again. Like I said, I'm just a slow reader, so I like to I like to put time into into newer stuff. Right,
1: right. That's um, why I, that's why I decided not to read The Sun Also Rises. Got it from the library because I didn't have a copy, and I was about to read it, and then I it's uh, like yeah, do I do I need to read another Ernest Hemingway book? Like I, and I know that's a like, super reductive thing, but it was, it was really in the mood to like, I felt like it was like, you know what? i got Hemingway and I like Hemingway and I should read, uh, something, whatever other library books that I had, you know, that yeah. I, to choose between. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do a new thing.
0: Well, books are funny, man. And I, you know, you and I have this ongoing conversation when I gripe about reading the New York Times book review, cause who can read all these books or, or, you know, what, to me, a book is like uh it would it's like getting the reviews for all the uh you know oceanic uh cruiser uh passages you could take. well how many of those you take one at a time It takes <laughs> you six months to get get to the new world well, why are we, why are you telling me about the other twenty four You've of course enlightened me that uh you can actually learn things from the book reviews you don't actually have to read the book to enjoy them, which I've taken that advice and and heeded it but yeah it's, like it's con- constant calculus of of what to read next it's uh it will drive you nuts um i did oh maybe in my mid-20s finally say to myself you know what dude if you want to stop reading a book just stop move on uh and leave it behind you and go on with your life and that that was a, a smart move on my part if i do
1: say so that is smart i have a very hard time doing that um except when the books have to go back to the library i i wanted to mention one other thing i don't know do you have the um the scrawl type cover on this where it looks like it's handwritten is that your cover of the book
0: no no i've got a very orderly kind of weird photographic cover
1: all right so uh i've got a paperback that reprints the first printing cover and it's got this style that like looks like an old book style. And there's a reason for that. It was designed by Paul Bacon, who designed a lot of book covers in the 70s, including, um, well, I don't know about Goodbye Columbus, but he did um, Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. And I feel like I've mm. seen a Goodbye Columbus cover that kind of looks like that. Um, and so I wonder, since... Uh, goodbye columbus was one of the inspirations if Shabon had requested this but a good rabbit hole to go down for anyone who's listened this far in the podcast i think they would they're down for any sort of rabbit hole is just mm-hmm. paul bacon uh book covers and record jackets uh really interesting guy with an amazing style and you'll be you know you've seen them before like they're so many classic mm-hmm. books from the 60s and the 70s were um were his book covers and i think it's neat that uh Shaban got
0: that on his book in, uh, 88. Well, that's, I mean, that's great. And that, you know, I feel like a lot of what we've been talking about is the aura of a book and a cover is kind of the, probably the easiest path into an aura. And, uh, I mean, if you know the designer and you know the, the tradition that even the cover is coming out of, um, I feel
1: like that sends it along yeah absolutely did this book feel like uh the 80s to you or did it just feel like a different planet the late 80s or the early 90s yeah i'm you
0: know yeah i i mean i could almost go with the 70s even um i'm trying to remember if there were any real 80s type signifiers for me i don't feel like i felt that anchored in a specific time except kind of pre pre pre-internet uh yeah well yeah
1: i was uh well i was thinking this book came out in 88 i think maybe 89 and uh that is when slacker came out and there's just something about that late 80s time which feels like it is the 90s although it's not actually the 90s yet yeah Um, yeah yeah and uh that's true i feel i'm
0: with you i'm with you yeah
1: I don't I yeah, I don't know. It just feels like a very weird timeless time because it is both. it is you know very much after the sixties and after the seventies, but it's not rooted in that like idea that we have of the eighties right now, yes, because exactly. slacker also very much like a post graduate post college grad sort of thing, and so there is just this very like there's total timelessness to it um, yeah, which I think is a big plus, you know? yeah yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's,
0: it's always ever you know any writing teacher will give you that advice right off the bat, uh, and, and even that's a fine line because you know I think there are some stories that gain a real strength from specificity, um, and you know I, I I'm not actually I, I don't know if some specificity might not have helped me engage with this book a little more. Um, it sometimes it felt sort of a little bit willfully uh willfully disengaged or something from from the realish world i don't i'm not sure i mean it's like his father is like a gangster who whose compadres seem to have come out of like the 30s right something right so you just get even more twisted up about it
1: and and Um, i mean a vague gangster, as it says in the first sentence or two <laughs> of the book. I mean, so yeah, yeah. There, there is a there is a vagueness that hangs over it. Um, except that he works at a the bookstore that he works at is like a mall bookstore. That's like the thing. No, I want to see like a what that I want to see like a crown book. So I want to look at pictures of crown books. That's what I'll be doing <laughs> after we record this.
0: Well, it has been a pleasure discussing this book, Mysteries of Pittsburgh.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Michael Chabon with you. Glad we did it. I'm glad you forced me to read it.
1: I'm delighted to force you to do anything, honestly. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's nice to know I've anybody... got that this strange power over you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if anybody listening has read the book and has thoughts, we would love to hear them. Maybe send us a, uh, I don't know,
1: can you, well, we'll have to figure it out. <laughs> Tweet us or. I don't know. If, figure out if there's a way to put a comment on our blog
0: Yeah, reach out. Let us know your thoughts. Um, if any of this resonated with you, if there's any books you reread. We'd be interested to know about that. And why any uh, any summer books outside of those that we've talked about? Love to hear about it. Uh, head over to TakeNote.Space. We've got a say hello button you can click
1: and send us a message. And I'd like to meantime, know. I'd like to know if people think. I'd like to know if people thought we were too mean about this book to put this podcast episode in front of Michael Chabon. So let us know I what you think like about I've, that, too. I feel like I've gone over over the line. Okay, so do not tell my we love Michael Chabon. He's uh, Ted's favorite author, as you can tell by this episode, except that he actually is, I think. But don't tell him. Don't tell Huge him about fan. this. You are. You Huge. really are. I really am. I just keep making you read your least favorite novel of this. <laughs> 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 Take care.